Hey, I'm Corey. And I'm Lori. And this is the Nourish Circle Podcast. Join the band as we gather in our Nourish Circle and talk all things weight-inclusive, haze, non-diet, and whatever else is nourishing us. Today's episode is brought to you by our Join the Band Teespring store. Click the link in our show notes to check out our badass non-diet dietitian merchandise. Today on the Nourish Circle podcast, I am speaking with Angela Meadows, who is a Bantine postdoctoral fellow specializing in predictors of how higher weight people respond to the stigma they encounter in their daily lives, whether by internalizing their low status or by rejecting and challenging devaluation. She got her PhD in psychology in 2018 from the University of Birmingham in the UK and completed a one-year ESRC postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Exeter in the UK before moving to Western University in London, Ontario in October 2019. In 2013, she accidentally founded what is now known as the Annual International Weight Stigma Conference and is still a bit bewildered by all of it, which we do talk about today, but is very proud that this conference brings together people from all over the world who care about weight stigma, even if they can't always agree with each other about anything else. She is a proponent of the Health at Every Size movement and an anti-stigma activist. She writes and blogs as herself and as Never Died Again UK and rants at length on the subject to anyone who will listen to her. I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Angela. Just a little note that we did record this prior to the COVID outbreak. Um, And so we talk about the annual weight stigma conference, which was supposed to be held in New Zealand in June 2020, but has since been canceled. So please note that we do have that conversation and I decided to leave it in because it really is a wonderful conference. And hopefully we will all be able to get to Berlin in 2021, um, as that was where she had mentioned that the next one was going to be. I hope everyone out there is doing well. Um, I'm thinking of everyone during this time, um, and I hope you really get a chance to dig in and enjoy this conversation I had with Angela today. Hello, Angela. Welcome to the Nourish Circle podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited um, to talk all about your work and what you've done. Um, But before we get started, um, I like to start by asking um, if there are any privileges or identities that you'd be open to sharing with before we start. Sure, yes. Um, I've been a weight stigma researcher for a while, but um, even as a fat person, I'm aware that I come with so many privileges. I'm white, middle class, straight, cis, uh, more or less able-bodied. I would say I'm a medium fat now. I usually have to get my clothes online. But when I started doing this, I was probably slightly smaller. So I haven't really experienced the same kind of hostility um, that a lot of other people have. So... You know, I, I sometimes have to remind myself that my story is not everybody's story. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I think it's so true when we do any of this type of work, we need to remember that our stories are very different from others. Um, and I know you have a fascinating story. So right now, as of spring 2020, you are the SSHRC Banting Postdoctoral Fellow um, in the Department of Psychology at the University of Western Ontario, which is quite close to where I am, well, two or three hours, Mm -hmm. which in the whole universe is quite close, Um, and you're doing research on weight stigma, but I know that you didn't just kind of one day go, oh, weight stigma is where to be. You have a very interesting um, path to how you got there, so I was wondering if you'd be open to talking about your story of how you got into 
uh, weight stigma research? Sure. Um, well, the full path would take more than the hour that we have to talk about this. Um, the shortened version of the path, I think, I think my journey was a lot like many other people's. You know, I grew up in a very fat phobic society where diet culture was rife. Um, and I started, um, should I give a trigger warning before this? I'm going to be talking about my dieting history and an eating disorder. Um, not in any great detail, but uh, sure. people might want to brace themselves a little bit. I think um, yeah, um, so I started dieting sort of early teens uh, before I quote unquote needed to. Um, I thought I was fat, whereas I wouldn't have been considered fat by medical standards. Uh, but I didn't like my body, you know, this is the norm. Uh, and I started dieting. And of course, then I started getting fatter and fatter, which is what dieting tends to do to you. And of course, you know, I didn't know any better. I blamed myself. What was the matter with me? Why couldn't I stick to a diet? All that kind of thing. Um, so I studied and I read and I learned more and more and I became more and more knowledgeable about how the body works. And meanwhile, I got fatter and fatter and fatter with you know the moral that I learned um, and I went to university to study nutrition and exercise science thinking that that would help um, discovered biochemistry <laughs> of all things and I became so excited by the science that I actually went into biomedical sciences um, sort of switching a little bit there uh, but I eventually found my way back to sort of the health and the you know the the body, the more macro scale, still trying to diet, still can't figure out why I can't lose weight, um, developed an eating disorder uh, that I didn't even know I had an eating disorder until much later when I was studying that and I recognized <laughs> I would have actually qualified clinically as having binge eating disorder. Um, very, very miserable, uh, lots of associated mental health problems and still thinking that if I just knew a bit more, if I just knew the right diet, if I just knew the right equation, and everything would fall into place. At no point did it occur to me that it wasn't me that was the problem. Um, and I have so much respect for the critical thinking skills of people that come to that realization on their own. You know, I, I got so bought into the dogma <laughs> that I just couldn't see that there was an alternative. Um, and then I read about food addiction. I thought that sounds just like me. So I decided to do a PhD. I, I missed the bit where I worked for the weight loss uh, uh, service of my local um, health organization. Oh, nice. um, yeah, delivering weight management classes. Um, uh, to this day, to my shame, you know, when you think of all the harm that you've done, you, th you think you're doing good. So, that, I mean, that's very, very challenging for I think a lot of people that discover uh, weight neutral approaches to health after having gone through all the other stuff. Yes. You know, you think about all the harm that you must have done. Um, and so I even did a master's in weight management. <laughs> but having said that, um, it was my final assignment on that that actually led me to where I am now, not because of anything they taught me, but just something that I stumbled across. Um, it was an assignment on exercise for weight loss, uh, which for the record, it's terrible exercises good for pretty much every system in your body, but it's not a reliable way to lose weight at all, not that very much is, but you don't see a lot of weight loss with exercise. Um, and I was researching that and I came across um, a study um, that essentially changed my entire life. And this was in my 40s. Um, and it was an incredible eye-opener. And it was um, a big cohort study, which is where a group of scientists collect data from a large number of people, thousands usually, and follow them over many years. 
um, and they sort of see what happens to them and they collect data from them at different time points. Uh, and the particular one that I found was uh, a fitness study. So they had all this data from people they'd been collecting since the 70s. Um, and it's a very well-run study. Every couple of years, they fill out questionnaires. And every five years, they get them into the lab and they do blood tests and you know all the um, objective measurement stuff. Uh, and they put them on a treadmill and see how fit they are. Um, and this particular study, what it did, it was presenting the results of fitness tests. You know whether or not they fell into an unfit category for their age group. What would be expected? of an adequate level of fitness, which is not a particularly high bar. It's, you know, um, and they were looking at follow-up of how many people had died, so all-cause mortality over the follow-up period. Um, and they separated out the results based on their BMI categories. And what they did was they compared people who fell into the normal weight BMI category, who were fit or not unfit, um, and everybody else was compared to them. And what they found was that even if you're in the normal weight BMI category, if you were unfit, you had just over twice the risk of having died during the follow-up period. Uh, if you were in the overweight BMI category, it was, high, it was slightly higher again. And if you were in the obese BMI category, your risk was just over three times as high as the so-called normal weight and fit people. But if you had a decent level of fitness or if you just didn't qualify as unfit, regardless of which BMI category you were in, your risk of dying during the follow-up period was the same, right back down to the baseline level. There were no differences based on weight if you had a decent level of fitness, um, which was astonishing to me. And it, this was, um, these data were, it was 26,000 men. It was a huge study. Um, it was published in a massively important journal, um, so the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is very respected. Uh, and it was published in 1999. Um, and I was reading this in 2011, so like 12 years later, and I'm thinking in all the reading and all the stuff I've been taught, how have I never heard about this? This is astonishing. I thought, I wonder if this was just like a fluke. I wonder if anybody's done it, you know, replicated it or tried to, you know, follow up on this. So once I had a starting point, I actually went out and I looked to see if anyone had done anything since then. And it just introduced me to a massive literature that I had no idea was there, showing that fitness was basically a great leveler. So getting regular exercise or having decent levels of fitness really kind of leveled the playing fields in terms of cardiovascular mortality, um, various diseases, all-cause mortality across the BMI spectrum. Um, and as many of your listeners will know, we've been trying to get people thin and keep them thin for decades and getting nowhere with it. But becoming non-sedentary and, and developing a decent level of fitness is very, very achievable. And I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're fighting the wrong battle here. Yes, we're taking this approach completely wrong. And we're also targeting the wrong people. This is something that applies to everybody. Um, and that really changed everything for me. And from there, I sort of did more reading. I discovered the health at every size model. I became 
sort of marginally interested in stigma. At that point, it still wasn't my main thing. Um, I became interested in internalized weight stigma because, you know, like most converts, I became quite fanatic about size acceptance and, you know, being okay with your body and focusing on sort of behaviors instead of weight. Um, but what I was seeing from, you know, the media and, and the like was that, you know, many healthcare professionals were saying, well, we can't have fat people accepting themselves because, you know, then they'll just get fatter and, you know, explode and destroy the entire universe. Um, you know, like it was a bad thing. But what I was seeing in the forums was that once people stop hating themselves, they start taking better care of themselves. So they might take the kids to the beach for the first time ever, whereas before they were, you know, too embarrassed or ashamed, you know, to be seen. Um, and really at the time, there wasn't anything in the peer-reviewed scientific literature that supported that. So what I set out to do with my PhD was to have a look at whether or not reducing internalized weight stigma, so self-stigma and self-devaluation based on weight, actually led to increases or improvements in um, behavioral health choices, um, whether it made people more active and eat better and what have you. So bear in mind, I'm still coming at this from a very much sort of scientific health promotion point of view. Um, and during the course of my PhD, I, I got a bit of an education from, from the fatosphere and from other colleagues and from my reading that really helping people, you know, hate themselves less. Well, you know, obviously it's better than hating yourself. You're basically putting a band-aid over the problem. You're asking the victims of stigma to change themselves, um, to fend off the blows a little bit better, to be more resilient, but you're not doing anything to stop the blows from coming. It's still also very much about individual behaviors and what individuals can do to make their life better, rather than seeing stigma as sort of a structural societal problem. Um, and that's when things kind of all fell into place a little bit for me. Um, so what my research is focused on now is that aspect of it. So I was interested in people who resist, who reject all of this, you know, all these messages we're getting and who fight back against it. And does that actually, one, help them personally, but also does it change society? Does it change what's considered acceptable behavior? Does it stop people stigmatizing? You know, does it have an effect? Um, and I come at this from looking at people, how do people not internalize weight stigma when there's so much of it out there? Who are these people? You know, what kind of characteristics? What are their thought processes? What does resistance look like in their everyday lives? How do they go about that? What are the costs associated with fighting back and the challenges? Um, and what are the payoffs from it? And that's the research that I'm doing now. That's so there you go. That's how I got to where I am now. The short version. The short version. Wow, I am extremely <laughs> fascinated with the long version because the short version was amazing. Um, it, it sounds like you got into all of this from a place that I think is very, very common. Um, being a dietitian and listening to other dietitians um, who have kind of transitioned into this area as well, it's that I originally went into nutrition to learn more for myself. You know, I wanted yeah. to learn better how to lose weight and I wanted to learn the science behind it because apparently I just couldn't do it myself, mm -hmm. um, which is so... Um, so interesting to me how that identity pushes us into careers. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that, you know, uh, in research, we call it me-search, but I mean, yeah, people go study psychology because, you know, they either have um, conditions or patterns, you know, amongst themselves or their family and that, that, that raises their interest. I mean, people, you know, tend to 
do things that affect their lives most of the yeah. time, or a lot of people do. Oh, so yeah. I think it's not unusual, yeah. yeah. And your research right now, the, um, the, the research you're doing presently is, is incredible. Um, is, how far along are you in that work yeah i know i mean you're saying it's incredible i'm thinking it will be when i mm -hmm, i know <laughs> um i developed a scale a weight stigma resistance scale um i think develops probably you know overselling a little bit i threw a scale together for one study you know when i first became interested in this aspect of it um and from a scientific point of view it actually performs quite well as, as scales go but it is limited you know again it was based on things that were already in the literature some of the questions about the kind of things people do to resist um are very much about politicized identities so um belonging to groups like you know nafa or other um civil rights groups others are things like speaking up and you know when somebody says something inappropriate and these won't really apply to everybody so what i'm doing at the moment is i'm planning a study where i speak to a much broader range of people with uh much broader experiences and trying to see what resistance looks like so the work going forward will be slightly different and hopefully more nuanced and more representative um so at the very early stages at the moment <laughs> It's still, it's incredible. I think it's, um, it's so needed because I loved the part where you said about it's when we work to make people hate themselves less, it, it is just like putting a bandaid on it. I say it with clients all mm -hmm. the time. We're in my office where it feels safe, but you have to go back into diet culture world. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, not hating yourself is better than the alternative. Oh, self hate, self stigma yes. yeah. is really bad for your health, not just mental health, but also physical health. And it has all sorts of problems. And not doing it is definitely an improvement, but you can't love yourself out of oppression. Um, you know, it makes no difference at the end of the day if you can't get a job or you're treated badly or, you know, all these kinds of things. It's, it's more of a structural problem. Yes, it's interesting. I feel that I've, I kind of live in my little bubble frequently um, mm -hmm. but my children are in the, the elementary school system and they come home asking me questions that they hear at school that they haven't heard talk like that at home and it's mm -hmm. so my youngest is eight and it's so prevalent even at such young ages um, yeah the, the impression well the research has shown that children as young as three have already picked up anti-fat attitudes which is so upsetting it is um oh yeah. they're learning it's so young mm -hmm. Like, and they're not I, born with it. I mean, it is something they're learning. Yeah. And they're it's learning it from their media and their classrooms. I mean, the media, especially the, you know, if you look at uh, cartoons and things that are aimed at young children, there is so much fat phobia in them. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something there's been a little bit of research on. It's something that we know intellectually. Um, I don't know if you've had the, uh, the pleasure of seeing the uh, documentary Fatitude. Um, right. Yeah, there's, um, they actually do, um, What's the word where they put a whole bunch of clips together from children's cartoons? I can't think what the word is. But oh seeing gosh. them one montage, thank you, uh, one after another, after another, after another. I mean, the, when I was there, it was a room full of activists and experienced people. And we were just sitting there with our jaws down <laughs> and just how stunningly powerful these repeated messages were. It was really quite shocking. Um, if you do get the opportunity to see it, it's worth watching. Oh, yeah, it's on my list of things to do. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize they did that. And three, it's so young. Yeah. Um, that's just... Yeah, already, you know, they do 
you know, the studies they do with little children are a little bit different, but they, you know, they ask some things about, you know, who's the lazy kid and whether or not they'd help this person put their toys away and this kind of thing. And the fat person generally fares the worst compared with other identities. Um, yeah, so young. Yeah, and it just makes me think about the passing down of internalized fat phobia. Um, yes. Um, from generation to generation and, and how how deep it goes and internalized it can be. It's just crazy. Um, and then, so are you doing this, your current research, is it Canada-based because you're here or are you, is it more worldwide and looking at different parts of the world? I know that might be yeah. a question. Um, no, I mean, it, it will be, so this study coming up, we're going to try and um, I think so many groups are very sort of North American centric. So if you recruit from groups like NAFA or ASDA, the Association for Size, Diversity and Health, uh, even No Lose, you're still looking at a predominantly North American uh, population, but I'm gonna be making some efforts to recruit from other places as well. So Dr. Kat Pause in New Zealand has an amazing podcast or radio show uh, called Friend of Marilyn, and she's made a real effort to reach out to fast activists all over the world um, and so she's, she's going to help me uh, get to some voices that quite often aren't heard because you know usually a lot of this research and a lot of the activism as well uh, is very much focused sort of on white middle-class Americans or Canadians or occasionally yeah. British people yeah yeah that's kind of what I was thinking the mm. diversifying and uh, friend of Marilyn is a great show <laughs> people should listen Definitely. <laughs> I 100% agree. Um, so you have, just to kind of go back to your story a little bit, you've um, lived all in various parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and do you find, this might be a weird question, but do you find um, like weight stigma and fat phobia equal in different parts that you've lived in or um, varying degrees? Or I don't really know what I'm asking. I guess I'm just wondering mm. if... I've only ever lived in North America, so. That's yeah, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because I haven't lived in that many places since I discovered oh, okay. uh, this alternative reality. So when I was living, I've lived in Japan, I've lived in Africa, I've lived in Australia. Back then I was still very much brought into diet culture, so I wouldn't necessarily have noticed it the same way. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't really answer that from personal experience. Okay. Certainly the literature is showing that we are spreading our fat phobia everywhere. Um, and even in countries and cultures where traditionally, you know, larger bodies were idealized, there's fat phobia coming in there and self-stigma, which is, you know, mm -hmm. very, very sad. Yeah, it is. Um, I recently just taught a weight stigma class. Um, and um, the, I, I just found, certain students um like the more um my international students really um kept raising their hands saying i don't understand i don't understand how this conversation comes up um well where, that's nice to know yeah whereas my north american students were more oh yeah <laughs> this that you're right like this is a mm. thing that we say and do um and i just so i just wonder because i knew you'd kind of moved around a little bit um uh, maybe there is still hope yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe it was just a, it's a very small cohort, so I don't know. Um, I know that um, um, work doing research that's kind of, well, you use the word resistance in, you know, building resistance. And I do find uh, weight stigma and um, 
FOB research is a little bit like the resistance. Um, is there any advice you would give listeners who are kind of interested in going into this area of research and how, you know, they can um, use their voice or um, help you know, be inclusive to bodies that need representation in their research? What can they do to kind of promote all that? Oh, there's a lot of questions in there. Uh, there's a lot. I'm sorry. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's a few different things going on in there. Um, for people that are planning on going into this area of research, I think the first piece of advice I would give you is make sure you have a good support network. Um, I, I think one of the things about studying stigma is that you never get to turn off. You know, if you're studying brainwaves or something, you, you go home at five o'clock and that's the end of it. But if you're studying stigma, you're reading about it all day. You're talking to people about it and then you leave your office and you see it on the side of a bus or when you turn the television on, um, you know, you never get to be off and it can be quite demoralizing at times. I think a support network is so important uh, for that. Uh, in terms of really making the world a better place, there's, you know, there are challenges there. I think it depends what field you're in. Um, I'm in psychology and certainly, I think it's changing a little bit, but until fairly recently, there's, and still to some extent, there's been a lot of distrust of people that mix research with advocacy or activism, as if, you know, if you've got an agenda, your research is less valid. Um, I think there's a growing awareness that no research is neutral. Everything's political. The questions you ask, the way you ask it, even the things that appear to be neutral, that, you know, those is based on assumptions of knowledge that are coming from somewhere. Um, and I think, you know, you can have an agenda and want to make things different and still do good research so long as you're transparent about it. Um, one of my studies gave me a result that I really, really didn't want to put out into the world. Um, but, you know, it's unethical to do so. People have given you their time so, and, you know, you've used resources. Um, and it, it's not good science to just show the results that you like, obviously. Um, and I got it published. And, you know, in the conclusion, I, I was backpedaling as much as I could, you know, don't read too much into this. And, you know, the opposite is yeah. probably true as well. And people behave this way because it was a study and they were being observed. Um, I actually showed, unfortunately, that when people were stigmatized, they ate less um, in, in the laboratory, particularly if they had high levels of internalized weight stigma, which was not at all what I wanted. It, was like, it wasn't what I was expecting to see because certainly all the questionnaire studies show that people that experience stigma and internalized stigma, they, they engage in more disordered eating behavior, they binge eat, they emotionally eat. Um, and I wasn't expecting you know, that to happen. Uh, and the obvious explanation is because they were in a lab, you know, they, they ate less so that they didn't look bad and then who knows what they did after they left. Um, but you know, it should all be grist for the mill for the people that say, see, stigma's good, which <laughs> is, you know, I tried everything I could think of, but at the end of the day, those were the data. And, you know, I tried to, you know, nuance it as much as possible in the discussion and, and publish it. So I think, you know, wanting things to happen and actually doing bad research are not the same thing. Um, in terms of, you know, really improving equity and, you know, getting the voices of marginalized groups out there. 
I think you have to work with members of those groups. First of all, you have to know they exist. As I said, be aware that your story is not everybody's story. Um, and then, you know, rather than, you know, there's a lot, there's, there are moves now, particularly in feminist research and more sociological research. It's still a bit of a struggle in psychology, but, you know, we're improving a bit. Um, but to work with uh, the members of these groups. So researcher isn't something that's done about them or to them, but rather with them. So bring people from these groups in at the beginning in the design stages. So it's not you in your ivory tower dictating how things are going to go and, you know, defining the constructs you're going to look at and the questions you're going to ask based on your knowledge, but actually going into these groups and saying, you know, is this appropriate? Do you have any input? Could, could I be doing this better? Um, and of course, and valuing those inputs, paying people for their time, giving them credit, um, not just sort of using them for free emotional labor and exploiting them. Um, so that's something I'm sort of starting or trying to do more of at the moment. Oh, I think that's I think that's great. And I, I love the way you said about um, the research with them, not to them. Because um, mm. I feel that that's maybe a little bit of a shift I've noticed in, um, well, mostly this area of research. Um, just it seems a little bit more inclusive than, you know, even when I was in my undergrad 15 years ago. Mm. Um, so not only are the you good news is, yeah. you know, for, from people going into this field, the good news is it's something that funders are becoming more aware of and more keen on. Oh, really? uh, engaged we engage research and co-production knowledge. So you actually have a reasonable chance of getting funding for this kind of work, uh, which is great progress, and it's really good to know. Yeah, that that is wonderful. Because <laughs> um, I, I was thinking about that too. I was like, I wonder if there is funding for this area. Um, so not only are you a wonderful researcher, you are also the founder of the Weight Stigma Conference. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit of what it was like to create this conference, as well as about the upcoming conferences. Sure. Um, it's a shame you can't see my face right now because I'm just <laughs> grinning at all the conflicts and all the challenges that you know are involved in that. Um, I get a lot of credit for founding the Weight Stigma Conference. I guess technically I did, but I didn't set out to found the conference. Um, so I was right at the start of my PhD. Um, I saw that there was a little bit of funding available within my college uh, to put on a small event. You know, it was a transferable skills doctoral student development grant, um, and I had just started my PhD in weight stigma which I had just discovered the person that was supervising me didn't know anything about it as far as I knew nobody at my university was studying stigma um, as far as I knew nobody in the UK was studying stigma um, all the research such as it was it was very limited that I was seeing was coming out of a handful of labs in the US uh, and I thought well I'll apply for this money and I'll see if I can find half a dozen other people in the UK that care about this and introduce myself to them basically um, I really didn't know anybody and my husband and I spent an entire week listing every single university in the UK, every single department within each university that might have somebody interested in weight stigma and getting a contact email address for each one. Oh, wow. And then we just blitzed it. Uh, we just sent out the notice to every single one. Um, and I had three months almost to the day from the day that I found out that I had the funding to the start of the conference. I'd never organized anything like this before. I didn't oh, know my what goodness. I was doing. Um, and three months later, a hundred odd people turned up, some of them internationally. 
Um, and by the end of the day, two other people had said, I'd like to host this in future. And that's when it became a conference. <laughs> and someone said, let's do this again. Um, and astonishingly, um, this year is going to be the eighth annual Weight Stigma Conference. Um, since year three, it's been a two-day event. Um, it's been held in many locations. It's been in the UK a few times, but Iceland, Canada a couple of times. We were in the Czech Republic one time. Um, and this year, we're going to be in New Zealand. Uh, so June 22nd and 23rd in Auckland. Um, we actually chose that to um, co-locate with, again, Cat Pause uh, has a fat studies conference every four years, uh, this year being one of those years, and that will be on the 18th and 19th of June in Auckland. So we have arranged our conference so that people can attend both. Um, I don't know if there are any people who listen to your podcast who are members of IS. BNPA, which is more sort of like a, a health, a health-focused nutrition and physical activity uh, conference. But it turns out that they're also in Auckland in the middle of June, and ICED, uh, the International Conference on Free Eating Disorders, is in Sydney around about the same time. Yeah. Um, so if you're out that way, <laughs> uh, come visit us. Um, you're talking about. Um, some of the difficulties, or you just mentioned the conference and I thought of some of the difficulties, um, but somebody that I know that's interested in weight stigma who's a kinesiologist was the one who told me about the Nutrition and Physical Activity Conference. Um, and I thought, you know, some of their members might be interested and I reached out to them and asked if they would send out a notification to their delegates to let them know about the weight stigma conference. And they came back and said, yeah, cross, cross uh, publication might be possible, uh, promotion. Uh, so I promote them and they promote me. And I'm looking at their conference and it's obesity this and childhood obesity that and I'm like how am I going to tell them I can't promote their conference but I want them to promote mine yeah. um, and this has been one of the challenges um, so um, in the past we've tried to um, co-locate with more mainstream conferences so um, the first year the reason I had such a short time frame was there was a big uh, unfortunately obesity conference European Congress on obesity uh, very near to us and I thought there'll be people coming from overseas for that that might want the weight stigma conference which is why we set that date uh, just afterwards and they refused point blank to promoters um, similar thing happened with uh, what's now known as obesity Canada who have a big thing about weight stigma uh, yes. but still position obesity <laughs> you know cafe, you know inverted commas um, as a problem you know so obviously stigma is bad but obesity um, and you know some bridges were burned when we tried to co-locate co our conference there you know because I didn't buy into everything they did and I'm saying yes but you buy into our message why can't you promote us and they're like no if you're not on board with us you know we're not interested um, really? it, it's been quite challenging um, and then of course there are people from the beginning, you know, I, I never wanted this to be a haze conference. I wanted it to reach all the people that were interested in weight stigma uh, across the spectrum. There's already a haze conference. ASDA runs a fantastic conference. Um, and, you know, I wanted to reach out to people in the fat studies and the social science fields, uh, as well as the health and the medical fields and various other places. But what's happened really is it's become... To start with, it was very polarized, and, and now it's gone the opposite way. Um, it's 
basically become centralized around people that have already sort of bought into the Hayes paradigm. Um, a lot of the major obesity researchers, people working within that paradigm, won't attend essentially because they're scared the activists are going to be mean to them. Uh, <laughs> you know, because we all enjoy going to obesity conferences so much so <laughs> to much. share our stigma work. Um, and again, some of the, you know, I've heard from dietitians that, you know, people um, have said, oh, it's for people that are haze and not for us. And then the fat studies and the critical science scholars won't come because we let the obesity people in. So it's not a safe space, um, which is incredibly frustrating, uh, <laughs> as yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. And every year I'm going through this. I mean, why am I doing this to myself? Yeah. And I have to remind myself, it is a benefit to the people that come and they get a lot out of it. But, you know, I feel that I failed in, you know, one of my goals, which was to bring some people together. There have been successes, of course, there have, you know, it's easy to forget those. Um, there's a lot of people that have, you know, said this has completely changed the way I think about things. Um, but, you know, you tend to remember the failures. <laughs> yes, human nature. I, I knew four or five people that went to the conference last year in London mm -hmm. um, yes. who just spoke so incredibly about it that the speakers were phenomenal and just how much they felt they got from it. And yes, I believe they're all hazel-aligned already, but um, they, they loved the way it was presented. So, um, and I'm just wondering, since you're, you know, on the other side of the world this year, are you having more speakers from kind of New Zealand, Australia area, or still coming from kind of all over the world to present? Uh, well, our keynotes, uh, we have one uh, local to Auckland uh, speaker. Uh, he is um, an exercise physiologist primarily, but um, he specializes in Maori health. Um, and he has become interested in how uh, the weight central paradigm is not serving this population and we're, we're doing things wrong and we could be doing things better. Um, we also have uh, Kimberly Dark, who uh, is based in Hawaii, who's um, an amazing writer, performer, activist, scholar. Um, and Lindo Bacon is our third keynote, uh, who wow. probably needs no introduction. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, people presenting their own work, so not the keynote speakers, but the ones who have submitted abstracts and the like, um, there's been a predominance from Australia, uh, some from New Zealand, uh, a few from other places. Um, I think for a lot of people, you know, we, we, the conference is um, set at break-even levels. It's a not-for-profit conference. We don't make money on it. Nobody takes any money out of it. We volunteer our time, mostly me. <laughs> um, but even so, if you make it cheap, if people are coming all that way, they probably want to have a little holiday and they can't afford the full package, so they're not coming, which is a shame. Um, but, you know, we'll have people from, you know, different places. I think it's going to be a bit smaller this year. It's certainly going to be smaller than last year. Last year it was huge. Um, but if you are interested in coming to the conference, um, abstract submission is still open. Um, we are taking submissions for oral presentations, which is usually about 
people's research, but not necessarily if you have something interesting to say in 10 minutes, you know, we're open to most things. Uh, we're also taking um, submissions for conference sessions, which is usually something that will take an hour of conference time, and it can look like pretty much anything. It could be a workshop, a masterclass, a seminar, a discussion group, a performance, um, you know, send it to us, we'll see what we think. Um, we're actually closing um, those probably before this podcast comes out. But if you have something really good, um, email us at stigmaconf at gmail.com and we'll see what we can do. Um, one thing that might happen is people that have been accepted might pull out if they find out they can't afford to fund the yeah. trip. So we may have some spaces available. So get in touch if you've got something. Um, but we're also accepting poster submissions and that will probably go through until May, uh, possibly even late May. Um, because we can always hire more poster boards, you know, <laughs> with oral sessions, you know, you need to organize a program, but there's no, there's no real limit on how many posters you can have. Um, so if you're interested in submitting a poster, again, this is often research, but it doesn't have to be. We've had art presentations on posters. Um, if you have no idea what any of this means, but would like to do something, again, drop us a line. <laughs> we'll work with you um, to make your idea into reality. Um, that's one of the things that I, I'm very proud of is that um, the first couple of years I found the quality of written submissions. The work was interesting, but the writing was really poor um, for a lot of them. You know, like people didn't have good supervisors helping them write good abstracts. And I basically set up a mentoring system, whereas if, if I think, you know, you have something interesting that I will work with you to help you bring it out, um, even a couple of times down to the point of saying, okay, just send me your data and let me see if I can figure out what you've got. Um, because, you know, they weren't getting the help they needed. Um, in their own institutions. Um, so people that have never done posters before, you know, yeah. all sorts of things. We'll help you make it happen if you want to. And of course, you are very welcome to just attend as a delegate, which is always very nice. You don't have anything to worry about. Um, it's a nice conference. It's very supportive. We feed you very well. Um, I think the Fat Studies Conference is going to be amazing as well. They have some incredible speakers. They have uh, Esther Rothbloom this year, who uh, founded Fat Studies Journal. Um, and also... Um, uh, Renee, um, Sonia Renee Taylor from The Body is Not an Apology. Yes. Um, so I can't wait for that one either. Um, yeah, so our website is stigmaconference.com. Uh, check us out. Come along. <laughs> uh, have a holiday. Um, yeah. Hopefully we'll see some of you there. Um, and then, so this year is in New Zealand, and do you have a location mm -hmm. for next year yet? Yes, uh, next year, again, probably at the end of June. There's sometimes a little bit of flexibility in that. I'm not sure of the exact dates yet, but it looks like we're going to be in Berlin next year in Germany. Germany. There's an amazing group of activists and scholars there who have been hoping to host for a couple of years now. So. Oh, incredible. So if you can't get all the way to Auckland this year, maybe you can get to Berlin next year. Start planning, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so... When you're working in this area and producing um, these, this conference, and you did mention that you get a little bit of pushback from the like Obesity Canada when you were here, how do you stay focused and positive and you know pushing through? Because it can be difficult. Like you said, you can't shut off the stigma work. Mm. Um, well, as you might have picked up, I don't always cope that well with it. I get very frustrated and I rant to anyone who will give me a microphone uh, about how, you know, people can't play nice together. Um, 
it can be very difficult. Um, I get pushback on the conference. Um, I think we were talking earlier about pushback on research as well. You know, I don't think I know a single stigma researcher that hasn't got a peer review back from a submitted article saying, yes, but what about obesity? Or why don't they just lose weight? Or words to that effect. Um, if for those of us that, you know, write for the public on websites like The Conversation, um, which presents sort of academic work to a, a more public audience, we get, you know, the trolling and, you know, you're destroying society and you're doing so much harm. Um, it's very, very difficult. And I think one of the ways I cope, I mean, obviously I talked about my research and uh, my support network, but one of the ways I cope is by withdrawing from that. You know, you burn out, you get tired. I do far less activism work than I used to. Um, now I'll see something that before I would have responded to and I just don't want to engage in it. Um, and then of course you feel guilty because you know, you could do something, but self-care comes first. I'm no use to anybody. Um, if I'm completely broken and there are always other people to pick up the mantle. I mean, so one thing is you don't have to do everything. Um, there are other people that can do this. Um, I think more and more we have allies are stepping in who aren't as personally, you know, hurt by some of these comments and, and beliefs. Um, and it's great. You know, it's sad that, you know, they have more power than those of us who are fat do because they're not just making excuses, uh, which is what we hear quite a lot. Um, and they get a lot of kickback as well. Um, but I think, you know, naturally siloing ourselves, you know, withdrawing into our own little networks. You mentioned, you know, you're in your little bubble, but your kids go out into the world. I think it's very easy to you know, pull into those bubbles just as a, a form of self-preservation, um, which obviously has pros and cons. It's not ideal. Um, but I've sort of surrounded myself more and more with people who are working, you know, at the social structural level of the research and distance myself more and more from sort of the health side of it. Because, yeah, it it is very hard to deal with. Yeah, I bet. I could probably just sit and talk to you about this for hours. It's your work. I want to so hear all about your work, but yeah, <laughs> we'll have to do that another time. We'll have to do that another day. <laughs> um, but I'm just trying to be very conscious of your time because you are a busy human. And um, <laughs> so I like to kind of wrap up the podcast with asking, what is nourishing you now? Yeah, um, I knew that question was coming and it was quite shocking to me that I couldn't think of an easy answer to it. Um, what is nourishing me right now? Um, I think a handful of interpersonal relationships, talking to um, some of my support group. Um, I have just moved to Canada uh, for this fellowship. I'm not especially happy here. My husband's still in the UK. Um, yeah, um, I don't mind that bit so much. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> we, we were living. <laughs> we were actually living apart last year because I had a fellowship in the UK, but it was about a four-hour drive from where he lived. Um, and I have to say, after 15 years of marriage, I absolutely loved having my own apartment. <laughs> uh, but 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 we did see each other a bit more when I was there. Um, I think you know the place that I'm living now. I don't particularly like it. So it's not nourishing me. It's not fulfilling me. And you know when I was thinking about how to answer this question, it made me realise that I need something more to nourish me in my life. I need to find that. I think I'm normalising kind of a a low level of discontent, which is which is not a way to live. And uh, so thank you for asking that. I'm going to I'm going to work on that. So I have to ask, is this your first winter in Canada? 
it is, but it's apparently been very mild. It's not been bad at all. Yes. No, it, it, it's true. That's what I was thinking, that it's a good kind of in, I guess, if you might be here for Yeah, I've heard horror stories. I have a big winter coat that I bought in Canada many, many years ago, and I've only had to wear it once so far. That's um, not bad. It's not bad at all. I mean, there's days when you can't leave the house because it's a white house outside, but not very many of them, you know, and it's crisp and it's fresh and the sun's shining. And yes, it might be snowing, but, you know, so long as you've got all your thermal layers on, you're fine. I was back in the UK a week before last, last week, uh, and it was so much milder, you know, it's like 10 degrees, 11 degrees, 12 degrees, but it was raining and it was yeah. windy and it was miserable. This is actually better. I prefer this. The strangest thing was getting dressed with just one layer of clothing. <laughs> yes. Here it's like, okay, thermal layer one. <laughs> Multiple layers all the time because <laughs> we change so much from some days in the morning to the afternoon. Yeah, layers, definitely layers on and off. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. So how can interested people connect with you and your work? I know you've mentioned the Weight Stigma Conference um, website, but is there any other way they can connect with you? They can. Um, people can email me. Um, I don't mind putting my email address out there because it's on certain various other things. So it's drameadows at gmail.com. So Dr. A. Meadows. I tried various other forms, but they were all taken, so I had to go with that. Uh, <laughs> Um, I do have um, sort of an academic website, AngelaMeadows.info, which I've done nothing with in over a year. Um, I did have a blog, Never Diet Again UK, which is currently down because I need to take all the pictures out of it that don't have um, the correct licenses and I haven't got around to that yet. Um, I'm on Twitter at DRA Meadows, uh, at DRA Meadows. And sort of look at that once every couple of weeks. As I said, I'm really withdrawing from, you know, all the sort of the usual channels. Um, I occasionally write stuff on uh, for the conversation. I used to write for Huffington Post, but I haven't for a while. Um, you know, I guess the easiest way would be Twitter, because if I do do anything, I'll tweet it. Um, I also have um, a Facebook group, which uh, for Never Diet Again UK, um, which tends to have lots of uh, automated. Uh, content from the fatosphere and that kind of thing and I post on it occasionally so that's and if I do anything it'll be on there as well so that's probably a good thing there'll be stuff every day which is not necessarily coming directly from me um, but if anybody wants to write to me personally about research or anything like that then yeah email's the best way to do it. Very cool and everyone don't forget the Weight Stigma Conference and check out that website. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise and talking about yourself and your research today. Um, it's been nourishing for me to hear all that you're doing. Okay. That's so sweet. Thank you, Laurie. Um, and thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Nourish Circle. Don't forget to like us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe so that you never miss an episode.